Well, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here and we are delighted that you are able to connect with us. And as uh, you've already uh, noted and and been told and uh, are aware of, we're doing things a little bit differently this morning, um, but we are happy that we're able to still uh, connect. And so if you are connecting with us online, we want to let you know one of the best ways to do that is through our online platform, and that's at www.onelifeseattle.org live. There you can find our online chat group, easy connection with our prayer team, and an online connection card. There's a Bible tab, and there's lots of other things that are there just to help it be a great uh, experience uh, for you. So hopefully you're able to connect with that. Some of you, it's awesome that you connect in other places, so go where it fits best for you. Um, we're just, at the end of the day, we're just happy that you're able to, to join with us. So with that, uh, let's pray. God, I give you great thanks for this day. Uh, and for your presence in our life and for this time. I pray uh, that you would speak to us uh, in only the way that you can. Um, And Lord, even though we are uh, going about this in a way that feels a little bit different and a little bit familiar at the same time, um, I pray that you would speak into that, God, that you would be uh, using this time and space and and the way we are gathering to continue to uh, engage with us. Um, Yeah, just ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week three of a sermon series entitled Embodied Presence. Uh, And in this series, we're looking at and working out what does it mean to be a church in this neighborhood, in our respective neighborhoods that we live in, in these days, in this time, in our context. What does it mean to to live out what it means to be church? Um, And this kind of ties in with our our mission statement and our purpose. Um, and, And if you remember... Our mission statement, when we came up with it, we tried to make it simple and memorable, so we just said, let's, let's have it be our name. One Life Community Church is going to be uh, our mission statement. So each uh, three weeks, we're going to be shifting uh, between those different words in our name. So the first three weeks of this series have been around One Life, the next three weeks about community, and then the last three weeks around church. And I want to kind of show you what that's going to look like um, Again, the first three weeks are going to be around one life, and it's the fullness of life that's found in the one life of the triune God or the Trinity, and we talked about that the first week, and it talked about how the Trinity lives in community and is the model of relationship for us. And then last week, Rich talked about prayer, and I'm going to hit on these a little bit more in just a second, and then today we're going to be looking at what it means to participate uh, in this one life. Uh, And then starting next week, we're going to explore for three weeks community, that the fullness of life, uh, there's a fullness of life being rooted in and serving in our neighborhoods. And we're going to look at what does place mean and and why is that significant? Does it really matter that much? Uh, Spoiler alert, yes, it does. Uh, And then serving in place. So once we identify that that's important, what does it mean to serve in those places? And then specifically looking at hospitality, both being a, a guest and a host, because those in Scripture are both super important. Um, and then last three weeks are going to be looking at the church, that the fullness, there's a fullness of life that's found in being the church. And uh, we've kind of phrased it being the church, nothing more and nothing less. Um, and that we're going to be looking at uh, what it means to remember and tell uh, the story. And that's the story of God, but also our space in that story. And, and what does it mean to worship? And then... Um, uh, and then mission, um, and it says missions up there, and missions are important, but that should say mission, so I gotta, that's a typo on my part, sorry about that, uh, but that's really what is just the purpose of the church, um, and then specifically, again, in, in these times, and all these, they don't, 
Um, they don't cover everything, but we really felt this is what God is inviting us to uh, in this time uh, and, and, and how we're supposed to participate in this time in our cities, our neighborhoods, our homes, our schools, uh, jobs, grocery stores, basically anywhere and everywhere that we are present. Um, and then we chose the, the, the term embody or embodied presence because the embody means to be an expression of or give uh, tangible or visible form to. And so it's really this idea of living it out. We want to, to know not just in our heads kind of some concepts, but we really want this to be lived out. And we feel like that's what God uh, is inviting us into. Now, in week one, we explored uh, this, this reality of the Trinity, that God exists as three unique, distinct uh, persons, but so united and so kind of harmoniously moving uh, with each other that they are one. And so it's this idea of three and one. Um, and we used an icon by a guy named Andre Rublev. Um, and uh, the icon is coming up on the screen here. And uh, an icon, one of the cool things about an icon that I want you to know is in, uh, in Orthodox Christianity, where the, sort of the iconography uh, was developed, um, icons are considered to be a window into the divine, right? And it's this idea that there's something not just about art that, that sort of can move us, but there's something about engaging with art and our imagination that allows us to see something different. So I really love that imagery of the window into the divine. Um, but this icon uh, depicts three people sitting at a table, and it's a depiction of the Trinity. And so the three people are unique. Um, they are unique in that they have different colors uh, and, and even style of clothing that, that sort of indicate who they are. Uh, and then they also have, um, whoops, behind them, there are some different images. So um, the Holy Spirit, the one with the green kind of sash, there's a hill behind them. Jesus, the one with the blue sash. Uh, in the middle, there's a tree behind that character, and then uh, God on the, on the other side with the kind of shimmering um, color robe with a little bit of blue, um, there's a house behind uh, God. And each one of those signifies different things about them, but they are sitting at a table which is reflective of their equality, that there's not any one of them that is dominant over the others. There's not one that's trying to sort of take the spotlight from any of the others, but they work uh, together, and again, in such uh, harmony and unity that they are considered uh, and, and live as one. Now, last week, Rich talked about prayer, um, and, uh, and this is going to fit in with this icon because there's this space there that uh, reflects this reality that there's a, there's a spot for humanity to be at the table. Um, and when Rich talked about prayer, Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. Um, because he sort of talked about it. it's this relationship with God that's expressed in intimacy. So just like any other uh, relationship that grows and flourishes, the ways we communicate, the forms and even the content of that communication within the relationship is going to change. Right? It's going to vary. And so Rich looked at the different ways and contexts of Jesus' prayer and his prayer life, and it opened up this really vast expanse, this huge landscape for me about what prayer uh, can be like. And so it's not just me asking God to do things or for help, although that's really uh, a significant part of it, but I remember when Rich asked the question, um, you know, did you know that uh, when Jesus prayed, he knew that all of his prayers weren't necessarily going to be answered as he expected them to be. Ugh. I don't know how that made you feel, but it made me just go, 
oh, Jesus does understand, right? There's something that he had to experience that, that helped him to know what it was to be human. And again, not just knowing this kind of, I understand the concept, but to experience um, uh, kind of way. Um, and these two topics, right, this idea of prayer this way and the Trinity and the open space at the table all build into what we're talking about today, which is uh, participation. Um, and I don't know if any of you had the experience growing up of at family gatherings, there's an adult table and a kid's table. Um, I did, and as many of us have noted over time that sometimes even as an adult, the kid's table can be a way more fun uh, place. But um, one of the things I remember was making the transition from the kid table to the adult table. And there was this kind of intermediate phase where the little kids were sitting somewhere, and then there was a group of us kind of middle school, high school, and we would just kind of go anywhere else in the house. Like we would find some corner, some room, we'd kind of huddle up and we'd eat. Uh, but then when I got sort of later in high school, um, I remember someone saying, hey, come and eat at the, at the, at the big table. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to eat at the big table. But I went and it was this really fascinating place. And there was discussions happening about work and politics and life and some things I was interested in, some I wasn't. But there was an expectation that I was gonna be present and participate in the conversation. Um, and, and what I remember about that was that feeling of being invited, right? And so it wasn't a pressure, but it was a, you know, if you wanna enter in and talk, you're completely welcome to, and what you say is welcome at this table. And it was an amazing experience. And that's what this participation is like. The word participate, by the way, uh, just means to take part in an action or an endeavor. And it's, uh, it's actually a very important word in our culture. Um, there are lots of studies and research done on participation, things like uh, what are, what's the impact of things like participation awards, where um, it goes beyond an award or reward for winning or first, second, or third, or however they break it up, but you get rewarded for participating because there's something to be honored in yeah, I actually showed up and I did something. Like I worked and I put something into it. And it's a way to honor that. And, um, and I think, you know, and some people think it's good. Some say it's not good and it's all over the place. But it does show that participation is something that we are looking at. Um, but I also know as a parent, there are times, and I'm sure none of you parents, other parents have ever said anything like this or uh, those of you who uh, you don't have kids yet, but you were a kid, maybe your parents said something like this, or you sense this, that um, my parents at times I felt like, and I at times have said, you know, I just want my kids to be doing something, right? And what I really mean is I want them to be doing something that I value, right? Something that I see as being worthwhile. And I actually have goals for that, right? It's not just that I want them to be doing something, but there's something I want them to gain, out of that. And um, one of the ways I've heard this phrase is this, this term grit, right? And uh, grit.org uh, phrases it this way. Simply put, grit is mental, physical, and emotional resilience. It's defined as passion and perseverance towards long-term goals. It's not something you're born with. You don't learn it in a classroom. You don't inherit it. And a lot of times, you don't even learn it from your parents. You earn it by experiencing and doing hard things. Sticking with it, even when you want to quit, and pushing through to the other side to experience personal growth. I recently heard uh, a comedian named uh, Parties Parker talking about it, but he used the phrase grind 
right? That is the sense I got I to get to the grind, the daily grind. I got to work through this. And, uh, and he said, you know, I'm actually tired of people telling me I need to grind, right? That I, that I need to engage with the struggle and do the work. Um, and he said, uh, one person told him, you know, every person who has made it has had to struggle. And he responded by saying, you know who else has had to struggle? Every person who hasn't made it. Um, and he said, but we don't get a lot of books about that group. Um, and my point in sharing that is to just again say, participation and why we participate are actually quite important in our culture. We have all kinds of reasons why we want things to happen. We want to gain this. We want to gain that. We want to grow. Um, and, and the way to do that, we often see, is to participate. But the reality is, is that we're always participating in something. Even if we're doing nothing, that's still something that we're participating in. If I'm just sitting somewhere, I'm still doing something. And so the question, I think, is not so much are we participating, but what are we participating in? And then a follow-up question is how are we participating in that? And when I look through Scripture, I see tons of people participating in all kinds of things, everyday things, eating, traveling, sleeping, being with friends and family. And then other things that seem bigger and monumental, going to war, government, politics, power, things on a heavenly cosmic nature kind of level, and then everything in between. And so I want to take a look at a handful of moments from Scripture, and I'm just going to do little brief overviews, and I really encourage you to go and investigate these moments uh, more on your own, um, but I think they're going to be helpful in this way for us to uh, what we're looking at. And the first of these is... is is what I'm going to call a, a bigger sort of thematic aspect of participation. Um, and that takes place in creation, that we are invited to participate by being stewards of creation, image bearers of God, which works itself out in love. And so uh, being a steward of creation means that we take care of creation. We tend to creation, that we're part of God's work. This is part of life activity at the table, that we make all things flourish, Right? That's just part of it. And that in that, we are invited as image bearers of God to see each other as image bearers of God. And this is how love gets expressed. Because um, if we acknowledge that each person is made in the image of God, and in that they are blessed, they are named beloved, then when we look at each other, we should see and treat each other very differently. That should have a huge impact on how we interact with one another. And that forms that foundation of love for how we see each other. Okay, so that's a couple of big thematic sort of aspects of participation that I think weave themselves throughout the entirety of Scripture. The next one is me getting a drink of water. So I'm going to step off camera maybe for a second. Really, me getting a drink of water is not part of it. But uh, the next one takes place when Israel is crossing the Jordan River. And I alluded to this in, uh, in the first week of this series when I talked about this is sort of a, a really good image of what it means to, to participate. Because the story is that um, Israel is going to cross the Jordan River to get into the promised land, the land that God has said, this is the land I'm giving to you. Uh, and it's all this cool stuff. But the Jordan River is at flood stage. At some places, it's a mile across and it's really churning and, and it's, it's almost impossible to cross at this time. 
And so God tells Joshua, look, Joshua, go tell the priests. This is in Joshua uh, 3 and 4. Go tell the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, you got to go into the water, and once you get your feet in, then I'll, I'll take care of it, and I'll make it passable. God asks for participation. God could have just said, you know what? I've already taken care of it. Don't worry about it. But God asks for some kind of movement, some kind of step, some kind of action. And then things happen. And so the priests take the ark, their feet get in the water, and it says upriver. It just stops up and downriver. Everything just flows out, and Israel is able to cross. The next one is in John 1, 35 through 39. And you may recognize some of these are some of my favorite uh, spots in Scripture, you've probably heard them before. But uh, the, the setup here is that uh, it's in the beginning of, of the Gospel of John, um, and this other John, John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus, is out baptizing people. He's baptized Jesus, and they're receiving a baptism of uh, repentance, right? And, and John is this prophet who is said to be preparing the way for Jesus, um, and so Jesus has been around, and so in 35 through 39, it says this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. John the Baptist had a group of followers, his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus um, saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Some of our participation is to come and see, right? I feel like this is what Jesus asks uh, and, and says when, when we come to him with any questions. Come and see. Follow me and see. Come follow me and, and find out. doesn't necessarily say you're going to find what you want. But it says, follow me and see, participate, come with me in this venture. And I think that's a huge aspect of our participation. The next one is uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It's uh, the only miracle aside from the resurrection that occurs specifically and so, uh, and so drawn out in all four Gospels. It's in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. Um, and the, the basic story is Jesus and the disciples are trying to get away uh, and have some time alone. They cross over this big lake. Uh, when they're over there, 5,000 other people at least show up. Um, and Jesus starts teaching them. And the disciples are starting to grumble a bit, like, oh, maybe we should send these people away. And Jesus is like, no, let's feed them. And so he invites the, the disciples in that moment to participate. And he says, hey, uh, where around here could we get food for them? And they're like, it doesn't even matter. If there was a place, they wouldn't have enough food. We don't have enough money. There's no way we can make this happen. Another one of the disciples brings this boy who's got a lunch, some bread and some fish, and says, well, we've got this. And Jesus says, here, bring it. And he breaks bread, and they start putting it in baskets, and all of a sudden there's enough for everyone with 12 baskets left over. Now, some interesting details within this story. The disciple who brings the boy is a brother of Peter's. And Peter is sort of, uh, uh, he's probably the most well-known of the disciples, right? So he gets a lot of airtime. He's, he's sort of famous. This, uh, this brother of his is not. And so there's this sort of, sort of image portrayed here of, of a brother maybe living in the shadow of um, of a more famous sibling. 
And then we have this boy, and, and, and the Greek there actually refers to a, a young boy or a small boy. So this would be a, a pretty young kid. And his lunch uh, in the Gospel of John uh, is described as being made of the bread is barley bread, which uh, this Jewish historian and philosopher says that barley bread is, is, is not suitable for human consumption. Right? It, it, maybe even animals, uh, non-human animals, shouldn't even be eating it. So it's like seen as really bad food. So this is not a great lunch. And so you have this sort of living in the shadow disciple bringing this little boy with this lunch that nobody wants. And Jesus makes it into food and a, and a feast that serves and feeds everyone with leftovers. And it says everyone's satisfied. Sometimes we are invited to participate and it doesn't feel like what we have is going to get it done. But Jesus says, well, let's see. Come and see, right? And then the last thing um, is uh, following Jesus to the cross. Right? Jesus has this long journey, and in the Gospels, at different points, it says things like Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, and it's this idea of he, he's now intent on going to Jerusalem, and he knows why he's going to Jerusalem. It's to die. And then there's his entering Jerusalem, and it's this triumphant or triumphal entry. And in doing so, he, he, he does this sort of counter-entry to all the power and, 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 and posturing of Rome, uh, and if you read those, uh, the specifics of those stories are pretty amazing about how Jesus demonstrated that. He has a meal with his friends. He's betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked, and then crucified. Sometimes we are called to participate in a way that costs us everything. But when we look at the whole arc of Scripture, what we see is that not every moment is the cross moment, right? And, and for some of you, that's going to like rattle how you think. Um, some moments, it's, it's just that we're supposed to offer our bad lunch, right? And some we are called to give our whole lives. And so then the question is, how do we figure out which time is which? How do we know? When I think one of the places I learned uh, how to address this is in the movie Frozen 2. Um, and, and I don't have a clip from this, um, but the, the setting is that one of the characters is experiencing immense pain and grief and sorrow of, of a gravity. They use that word gravity that they've never experienced before. And the only thing they can do is what they phrase the next right thing. And that might be just turning your head to look somewhere. That might be taking one step. Some days when we feel like we can't get out of bed, maybe it's getting out of bed. Some days it might be saying, no, the next right thing is I'm going to turn my head and look at my clock. Maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's like, no, the next right step is just me staying right here. Uh, a book I read called Touching the Void is about a, a mountain climber and, and kind of adventurous kind of guy named Joe Simpson. And he was climbing in South America with a buddy. And in the process, he broke his leg. And it was the kind of, they were in the kind of spot where the other person says, so look, I'm going to get back to base camp and I'm going to see if I can get help back up here. But 
That's, I make no promises. And instead, they tried to, to get both people down through this system of lowering one guy down, and then he would sort of you know, hunker down into the side of this mountain, and then the other guy would climb down a little bit, and then they'd lower him down. But in the process of that, the guy with the broken leg fell into this big crevasse. And so um, the guy had to leave him. Um, and so the other guy went down, and Joe Simpson was saying, as, as he was trying to make his way to base camp, he said, I, I stopped thinking about base camp completely. And, and, and my strategy and, and the way I moved became, okay, there's a rock that's one foot away from me. That's what I'm going to get to. Sometimes our participating might feel like that. You know what? The goal is so far out there, I don't even know. But with the next right thing, that rock. I do have a movie clip. Um, it's from the second Karate Kid movie. Not Karate Kid 2, but the second series with um, Jackie Chan and um, oh, Will Smith's son. What's Will Smith's son's name? First name. Anyone here know? Okay. I feel I should have written that down. Um, but, um, and the, the idea here is that um, the character's name is Dre, and he and his mom have moved to China, and he's being bullied um, by, uh, by some other kids there. And so he's uh, met with this other person played by Jackie Chan, and he's going to teach him kung fu. Uh, but so far, all he's taught him is to take his coat off and pick it up. Right? And, and so he's in this spot where he's like, you know, I'm doing this every day. It doesn't seem to be making any difference. Uh, picking his coat up was an issue at home. And so you know, he's leaving his coat laying around. So he thinks it's tied to this. Like, I know I got to be respectful and all this stuff and learn to pick up my coat. Um, <clears throat> but this is the moment where he's, he's confronting uh, Jackie Chan's character about this. Um, and so I think that'll, that'll be enough of a setup. Well, Mr. Han, I told you, I get it, okay? Be respectful. I got it. I put my jacket on a thousand times, I took it off a thousand times, okay? This is stupid. I'm done. They can beat me up if they want to. And you know why you only have one student? Because you don't know Kung Fu. So Dre. What? Come here. Check it on. Mr. Han, I already... Check it on. Check it on. I don't have a jacket Check on. Check it on. Remember, always strong. Check it off. Strong. Left foot back. Right feet back. Left feet back. Pick up his jacket. Focus. Always concentrate. Left back. Right foot back. Pick up 
Kill the jacket! Stay! Pick up your jacket. Stop. Hang it up. Hang it up. Hang up. And attitude. Strike. Hang up and attitude. Harder. Harder. Good. But no face. Everything we do, Xiao Zhui. He lives in how we put on the jacket, how we take off the jacket. And lives in how we treat people. Everything is Kung Fu. Some of the ways that we participate may seem monotonous. We may not understand, why do I have to do this every day? Why does it feel like this? Sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, and there are plenty of things in that clip that we could uh, talk about in other ways, but um, sometimes the things that, that we do are preparing us for something later. Um, and, and we have been uh, invited to maybe even look back and remember what are the things that I've been invited to do? What are the things that I've participated in? And how have those shaped me uh, for this time, for what we're doing now, to participate well now? Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through, it says, our knowledge. And this word knowledge, again, it's this word um, that is not just intellectual, although that's part of it but it's more holistic knowledge gained through experience, right? So that our whole person is informed. So really through a relationship with God, this intimacy, this being at the table, this experience with God, we have everything we need to participate in that godly table life. And it says these precious promises, promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I keep and sustain. God's 
purpose of redeeming and bringing about new life to all things, including at some point a new heaven and a new earth. Realities like God is love, that every human being is a child of God, an image bearer of God, the beloved of God. And through these promises, then, Peter says, we're able to participate in the divine nature. Remember that nature we talked about, that God is love. We're able to participate in love. And if we remember, too, there was the, the, the song in between the announcements and, and starting of the sermon was about God doesn't give up on us. Right? That's, that's love. Now, tomorrow, we're going to celebrate and honor Martin Luther King Jr., a, a minister, an activist, a human being who participated in life at the table of God. He was a black minister. He wrote a letter during a time when he was in prison, much like the Apostle Paul had done. But he was in jail because of a nonviolent protest he had participated in um, while protesting against racial injustice and inequality. And uh, you should read this whole letter. Um, it's called The Letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, I'm going to read just a few portions of it. But I, what I want to ask is that you... Uh, listen, so I, I'm not going to have the words up. I'm just going to read, and I want, uh, I want to invite you to listen. Be open to what does this uh, say about or speak to you um, about participation. Some parts of it are challenging. Some parts of it, uh, you know, I'll let you figure out what, what parts of it do what. So anyways, um, part of his letter is critiquing uh, the church. And so, uh, and so we're going to pick up right after that starts. He says, I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. And he talks about how in this in this protest that he was participating in, he was hoping for more support from the church, and specifically the white church. And so he continues, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful, 
In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed, in those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the moors of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. He moves on towards the end of the letter and he says, Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth, and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. Um, again, I, I just ask you to be open to how that may challenge you, how that may inspire you, how God would speak through uh, the words of someone who lived at the table. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to ask a couple questions, and then we're going to 
I'll pray and we'll close with a song and a benediction. Uh, Before I do that, I just want to remind you that uh, our prayer team is available for you to pray with. Is there anything you want to celebrate, honor, intercede for? Ask God help. um, Help with whatever it may be. They are there for you uh, to to pray with. Um, So a couple of questions to ponder. Um, What have you been participating in recently? Um, And where are you participating um, what kinds of things have you, have you been doing? What, what kinds of things uh, ha- has that been feeding? Where and where are you doing that? Right? It might be at home. It might be at work. It might be at work at home. Um, it might be at the grocery store, wherever it is. Um, and then two, what has that participating stirred in you? What kinds of feelings and thoughts have you had while you're going about the things that you're going about? Um, And then lastly, has that participation stirred life in you, the people around you, or the places you are in? Um, Yeah, let's pray. God, we uh, acknowledge um, that you invite us to participate with you at the table and in in, in ways that make a difference. And so I pray that um, we would take that seriously um, and find the fullness of life that does exist by being at the table, the table of love, and participating in that and being that way in the world. Yeah, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.